Let's pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Be seated. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you um, on the beginning of the Lenten season. Now, um, for many of you, this may be like the first time in which you're stepping into a church calendar season like Lent, and uh, hopefully you got to be a part of the Ash Wednesday service that, that kind of begins this Lenten season. But, but Lent, is, just as a reminder, is just, it's just a time in which we, we ask God to prune us, right, to, to, to make us more like himself by taking things out of our lives and making room for him to step in, to show us more of ourselves, to make more room for him that he may be all things in all in us. And so that's, that's the season that we're in. And of course, there's lots of ways to do that. One of the ways in which we're inviting you to do that together as a community is to be a part of this, this, uh, this uh, Lenten calendar. And each week on this Lent calendar, which by the way, if you don't have one, you can grab one on the way out. Make sure you have one of those with you. But this is kind of the first week, if you will, and we focus in one particular direction this week, and that's the direction of pace. What does it look like for us to slow down to make room for God? Now, now for some of you, like, slow pace is kind of the way in which you do life, right? You're kind of more tortoise, less hair, you know? Um, like I'm all hair, you know, so it's kind of like run, 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 fall. That's kind of how I do things. So depending on who you are, right, and, and the Lenten season is going to be an invitation of different kinds of repentances. But like this week, it's like the invitation to drive slowly, to talk slowly, which is very difficult for me. Uh, but it's an invitation to bring all things in submission to him by taking and making room for him in the pace of our lives, to, to go for a walk, to make some space by praying uh, at, at the, the Lord's Prayer multiple times throughout the day. So, so that's the invitation of this week. And I just, I, my call and my invitation to you is like, lean in. Let God do something through this season, through this time that you otherwise maybe wouldn't do or you wouldn't allow him to do. So that's some of what you're being invited into during Lent and um, it's a great time to be able to do something like this together and make room for God uh, as a community. So that's that's the one thing that, that's the season that we're in, and all of our worship is going to be focused on that. All of our readings are going to be focused in that direction, our confessions. Uh, it's the time in which we look in for God to do the pruning work that prepares us for Easter. Um, now, one of the ways in which we can do that is in a particular area of our lives, and namely parenting is one of the ways in which God may be inviting you to be pruned a little bit. And we're going to be doing a, a parenting seminar that's going to be actually this coming weekend. So you have to the end of today to register if you haven't had a chance to register. But this is, I just want to give you a little more clarity around what this is going to look like. This is, this, we're going to have basically four different sessions, two on Friday night and two on Saturday morning. And uh, if you want, we're doing digital and live. So it'll be people here in the room and then some of you are going to be ju just digital and that's great. But one of the things we want to invite you into is to look at what it looks like to team up in your marriage or, or for those of you that are single moms or single dads to be able to, Think through what are the unique dynamics that you're offering to your kids in particular. So what is the atmosphere of your home and how, how does that like, create the kind of environment for the kind of thriving that can play itself out? On top of that, we're going to be looking at areas of like, like discipline. How, how does discipline work and what can it play, how can it play itself out in transforming the way in which you think about being a parent, the way in which you think about how you've been parenting, um, 
And then lastly, one of the key pieces is like, how do we navigate the, the current? Some of you are in the current teen season, um, especially in the areas of sexuality, which is one of the trickiest pieces that everyone is talking about, but sometimes parents aren't. And so how do you prepare your kids for, how do you step into the current season of, of adolescence and particular areas of sexuality? So kind of a big deal. We're going to kind of talk about a lot of different things. We're going to have Q&A times. We're going to have round table talk times and Zoom rooms. So like, this is a great opportunity to let God do some good work in your parenting, which honestly will affect marriages too, I believe. Uh, so it really matters. So if you want to be a part of that, make sure you go and register. You can do so online. You can do so on the app. You can do any of those things. Um, and we'd love to have you be a part of it uh, this coming weekend, Friday night and Saturday. So if you have any questions, by all means, feel free to talk to myself or Kim or others. Reach out to us. We'd love to make room for you a part of that. So those are the two key announcements. Steve, my friend, my brother, excited about you coming up and inviting us into Jeremiah. It's gonna be awesome. Yes. All right, good morning. Thank you. Uh, today, we're going to be reading from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, starting in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us, you know what we've been doing is together as a congregation reading through the entire Bible, and then we pause on Sunday morning to take a look into one of the things that we read this week. And so that brings us to the first half of Jeremiah today. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet of the Lord in the years before the, ex um, the Babylonian exile um, of Judah. And before we get into the life and, uh, of Jeremiah and his book, um, we need to talk about the nature of biblical prophecy. And these are important foundations to establish before we begin because today we have what seems like a very vocal contingent of the church of Jesus Christ, especially the evangelical church of Jesus Christ, who claim to be prophets and are making predictions about our national destiny, and maybe more to the point, our national political destiny. And so we need to talk about this for a moment before we jump into this large book of prophecy. So when we hear the word prophecy, we immediately associate it with the act of predicting the future. And while the prophets did, it's true, at times speak about future events, that was not their main ministry. You have to hear that. They did speak of future things now and then, but that was not their main ministry. Most of the writings of the prophets were concerned with present events 
in their hearers' lives. But the prophets didn't merely offer, you know, commentary on what was going on in their current situation. Uh, Instead, they had a very specific task from the Lord, and I've never heard anyone describe that task better than Walter Brueggemann in his little book, The Prophetic Imagination. And this is dense, but, you know, don't worry, I'll explain it. Just listen, just listen. He says, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. That's, as I said, dense. Let me read it again. Just, just let, it, let it in. We're pausing. This is Lent. This is, we are chilling for a little bit. So just let this in. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Everybody still in their chairs. Ah, that's a, oh, I mean, we, I mean oh, that's, uh, let me just, let me, let me speak on that a little bit. Um, in other words, the God-given task of the prophet is to give God's people a different but authoritative interpretation of their surrounding culture, of the events that are going on in their lifetime. Like think of it as a set of blinds on your window. And and imagine that the, the string is pulled and they're all the way closed. What Brueggemann is saying is that as God's people look at the blinds, They assume that they have a proper understanding of what's going on in God's world and what he's up to. But a prophet of the Lord comes along, and this is the prophet's vocation, the prophet of the Lord comes along, and his or her task is to pull the string and and crank those blinds open, even just a bit, so that God's people can see a completely new reality, not looking at the blinds, but looking through them or as Brueggemann puts it, an alternative consciousness and perception. The prophet says, you're all looking at the blinds and you assume that you know what God is up to, but the true interpretation of God's work is in the world through the blinds. And my job is to crack those open just a little to help you see through the blinds to the truth in the world beyond. So that's what biblical prophets do from Jeremiah to Isaiah to Micah to Amos to John in Revelation. That's what biblical prophets do. They are providing an alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us so that we can see and understand what God is truly up to in the world. So, you know, all the bluster from evangelical prophets. I, I, I thought about not doing that, but I, I, I'm, I did it. Um, all this bluster in the last few months who, you know, they claimed in the name of Jesus that certain political candidates would in fact win the 2020 election. They are not doing what prophets ought to do according to the biblical reckoning. I'm not going to get into the candidates. I'm not, that's not the point. I'm talking about the prophets. 
the first reason I say that they're not doing what they ought to be doing is because, first of all, their predictions did not come to pass. And we're not going to read this part in Jeremiah, uh, but in Jeremiah, it's very clear uh, by the words of the Lord that if a prophet's words do not come to pass, they are labeled false prophets, shut up, we don't want to hear from you anymore. They said, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't happen. Second of all, if they insist on styling themselves as prophets of the Lord, then they would do better to spend their time interpreting what the church is, go what the church is um, living through in its present moment and what that present moment means rather than what our future situation will be. Okay. So that, that's the foundation of what biblical prophecy is. I told Matt before I came in here, I, I had like twice as much more. There's so much more to say here, but I'm just have to stop there. So that's the foundation that's laid. And now we can wade into the turbulent waters of the book of Jeremiah. And this week, what I'm going to attempt to do is a, kind of a survey of the first 29 chapters. And then next week, we're going to look at chapters 30 through 33, which will serve as sort of a stand in for the, re the last half of the book. So today, in order to get into this, let's consider Jeremiah, the first half under three headings. Number one, the calling of Jeremiah. Number two, the message of Jeremiah. And then number three, the hope of Jeremiah. So the calling, the message, and the hope. Let's begin with the calling in chapter one. Starting in verse four, it says, now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And this calling from the Lord to be his prophet among the people, this is not that unusual among the other narratives of the prophets that we have. These are people which God chose before they were even born so that they might bring words of comfort and judgment to his people. Sometimes comfort, sometimes judgment, sometimes both. And, you know, I mean, that, that ought to be a great privilege. But Jeremiah does not see it that way. He does not think it's a privilege because in the very next verse, verse 6, he says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So Jeremiah tries to reject the calling of the prophet because Jeremiah feels that he's inadequate to perform this duty. And by the way, that's the kind of prophet you want. You want one that's like, oh, I don't know that I can. You don't, okay, I need to stop. So the Lord counters Jeremiah with this. Verse seven, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so that's what Jeremiah did. He went out and he preached to God's people in Judah. And his message was not well received, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the next point. Um, but for now, we just need to understand something that's unique about Jeremiah as a prophet, and that's these frequent emotional outbursts 
that he has throughout his preaching ministry. Like, he loves God. He loves God's people. He loves the land of promise. And so as he's declaring their doom, he does so with weeping. It's like, oh, that my eyes were rivers so that they would not dry up and they would continue flowing with tears. He is, his guts are wrenched. Furthermore, he never really seems to lose his reluctance to fulfill his vocation as prophet. He, he even contemplates at one point quitting, but he can't. Chapter 20, verse 9, if I say, I will, I, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So everything that Jeremiah is called to do, he feels it deeply. His grief is stirred by the blatant breaking of the covenant that he sees all around him. His fury is stoked by the idolatry of his people. His ire is kindled by a God who will not just let him live according to his own devices. So Jeremiah is not your typical prophet. He is weary, he is reluctant, he is angry, he weeps uncontrollably, and because of all that, he is magnificent. So that's the calling of Jeremiah and his prophetic vocation. Now let's move on to what it is that Jeremiah actually preached. Number two, the message of Jeremiah. So since Jeremiah like felt everything he preached deep in his bones, it's no surprise that we see this preaching and it's equally gut-wrenching. And I want to focus just on one sermon that Jeremiah preached in chapter 7. And this will give you a sense of the whole of his preaching ministry. So the Lord, in this particular chapter, instructs Jeremiah to go and stand in the gates of the temple and to start preaching these words to his idolatrous people. We'll start in verse 8 of chapter 7. Jeremiah preaches, Behold, you, that's all the people of God, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. In other words, the Lord is chastising the people for their duplicity. Inside the temple, they come and they worship and they perform the acts thereunto appertaining and they declare, we are saved, we are delivered. But as soon as they leave the temple doors, they're traitors and they perform acts of utter wickedness like stealing and murdering and committing adultery and swearing falsely and they make offerings to Baal and other gods that they have not known. So in a word, they have become duplicitous idolaters and assume that the proper form of worship in the temple gives them some kind of license to trample God's covenant outside the walls of the temple. And this is what happens in their everyday lives and they can't even see it. The blinds are closed and they can't see it. 
And so Jeremiah comes along and he cracks those blinds just a little bit and offers God's people an alternative perception and consciousness of their current reality. Now, I'm going to get to that in a second, but Jeremiah is here preaching about idolatry. And when it comes to idolatry, Jeremiah's language is <laughs> it's exceedingly grievous. Um, just to fill in the concepts here in the temple sermon in chapter 7, I, I just want to dip into Jeremiah's preaching in chapter 2, which through the Lord, Jeremiah defines um, idolatry as adultery. And this is, this is probably the part you want to, you know, distract your children. Uh, I'll try to go through it quickly um, because it's, it's very difficult to listen to. Listen to how Jeremiah in chapter 2, starting in verse 20, defines idolatry. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, he's speaking to his people, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and every under green, and every, under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. This is what idolatry is, according to the preaching of Jeremiah. And, and I hope you can feel that. I hope you can feel the deep pain the Lord experiences when his people reject him and go after other gods. We, we seem to have this view of God that's not quite right where he's sort of stoic and just like doles out judgment because, you know, it's Tuesday and it's 5 o'clock and it's judgment time. And he just feels nothing. No. Listen. His, his heart is broken over the adultery of his wife, which is to say his people. I hope Jeremiah's preaching gives you a sense of this heart-rending experience that God has when he witnesses his people going out and breaking his law and worshiping other gods and then coming right back into the temple and acting like everything is just fine. Jeremiah's message to them is clear. This is what happens when he cracks the blinds. He says, look through to the other world, it is not fine. Everything is not okay. And for their spiritual adultery, Jeremiah tells them, there will come a reckoning. Back to chapter 7, verse 13. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, 
and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. The Lord says through Jeremiah that if his people don't reform their ways, there will come a judgment upon them. And not only upon them, but upon the very temple of God itself. But as Jeremiah is saying this, to his great dismay, nobody listened to him. In fact, I mean, don't you think it would be obvious? We're in the high places worshiping the Baals for crying out loud. We know the Ten Commandments. We, we understand no idols. We understand no gods before me. Jeremiah comes saying, look, you're worshiping idols. You're, you're breaking the, uh, most of the commandments. You're stealing. You're murdering. Worshiping. You, you would think it would just make sense to them, but it doesn't. In fact, the Lord told him that that would be the case near the end of the sermon in verse 27. He says, <laughs> I hope no, the Lord never says this to me uh, before I preach, but it's like, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer. So the Lord says, oh yeah, you have to preach this, but by the way, they will not answer. They will not respond. They will not hear. They cannot hear. And so the people of Judah refused to repent of their idolatry. And although they witnessed Jeremiah on the streets just weeping his guts out uh, over their coming judgment, they stiffened their necks, they continued in their idolatry, and then the judgment came. In the year 587 B.C., the Babylonians came thundering over the plains and pouring over the hills. They slaughtered the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and anyone they spared, they carted off into exile in Babylon. And then the crowning achievement of their invasion, just as Jeremiah said it would happen, was that the Babylonians burned the temple of God to the ground. They, they burned the temple to the ground. Think of that for a moment. That, the temple is that ancient place where heaven and earth overlapped. The temple was the place where God met with his people. The temple was the place where God dwelt among his people. And now, because of their idolatry and their adultery, it was destroyed. And so, there beside the waters of Babylon, the exiled people of God wept. Finally, they could see it. But then, false prophets came to them yet again. They said, cheer up. Your exile will be very short. You'll be back in Judah, back in Jerusalem, with a rebuilt temple before you know it. And Jeremiah's response to that message brings us to our final Point, the hope of Jeremiah. The hope of Jeremiah is not the same as the hope of these false prophets. So in response to these false prophets who are lying to God's people about the duration of their exile, the Lord instructs Jeremiah in chapter 27 to make a yoke 
like the, the piece of wood that goes and binds two farm animals together who can then pull a plow, a yoke. He says, make a yoke, strap it to your neck. And this visual parable was there to communicate the following in chapter 27, starting in verse 6. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters, which is to say uh, the Babylonians. It is I who by my great power and outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and, to, and, who, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Okay, stop for a second. In other words, um, God is interpreting to his people what's going on with this exile. Remember, he's, he's cracking the blinds. He's helping them see what's going on. If you want to know why you are in exile, why the temple was burned down, why your people have been slaughtered in the land, why, why all of this calamity is falling upon you, if you want to know why that is, it's because I did it. This is my judgment that you earned coming upon you. Verse 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine and pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. Do you hear that? I, I, no, I, I don't think it's up here, but are you hearing what he's saying? He's saying, like, there are false prophets there telling you that, that you are not to serve the king of Babylon. And what God says to them through Jeremiah is, no, this is my doing. You serve the king of Babylon during the time of your exile. In other words, uh, the other thing these false prophets are saying in this passage is that your exile will be over, quick and done. Your exile will last um, uh, excuse me, he's saying, what the Lord is saying is that, no, your exile will not be over quick and done. Your exile is going to last generations. Submit to the yoke of your enemies because they have been brought to chasten you by the very hand of God. It's the false prophets who prophesy that God has something great for you just around the corner. No, Jeremiah says, this chastening is from the Lord, and you must submit to it. In fact, you shall bear this yoke, he says here, for 70 years. And for any of God's people who actually believed Jeremiah's message, that must have induced no small amount of despair. 70 years. I mean, the average life expectancy in this time was like 40 years old. 70 years. A person can endure almost anything if they know that the end is near, right? Just clench the jaw, breathe deep, 
head down, power through. And what keeps the person enduring is the hope that the end is very near. But Jeremiah says, your trial, the end of your trial is not near. You cannot put your hope of endurance in a speedy end to this trial, in a speedy end to your suffering, because that is not coming. <laughs> I said this was about the hope of Jeremiah. This sounds bleak, but hold on. Into that despair, Jeremiah offers them a different kind of hope. Chapter 29, he writes a letter to the people who are in exile, tells them to quit believing the lies of the false prophets. Instead, settle down in Babylon. Build houses, plant vineyards, give yourself, give yourself to a vocation, settle in as if it were your home because it would indeed be their home for the next 70 years. But then the Lord, through Jeremiah, speaks these magnificent words into the dark night of their despair. Chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now I'd wager that many of you, if you been around the church, read the Bible, you've heard these verses before. Maybe you've even taken comfort in them. And it's, you know, it's kind of a sport among the, you know, more mature Christians, um, properly informed, uh, to wag our fingers at people and say, you know, Christian, those verses are not for you. Those were written to Israel. Therefore, you cannot claim them. And there's some truth to that. There is. But while these verses weren't spoken to us, they were not spoken to us in this age, they do tell us something very important about who God is, namely that he's a God who injects hope into the dark night of his people's suffering. Think of that. Jeremiah tells them to settle into their exile because it will be generations before they return to their homes. And that surely tempted them to believe that the Lord their God had abandoned them, that he had plans to crush them under the weight of his judgment. And to be clear, that is exactly what they deserved for their idolatry. If you go back, we don't have time now, but if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, read through the Levitical law, adultery was a capital sin. It earned a capital punishment. But right in the middle of it, God cracks the blinds and he reinterprets their situation. He says, whatever it may look like to you, I do have plans for your welfare. I do have plans to give you a future and a hope. And 
talk about an alternative perception, an alternative consciousness. And that message is surely for us as well, because what the exiles couldn't seem to grasp is that the unfolding drama of God's redemption was not yet complete. God said, I have a future for you. And the Lord did, in fact, bring them home after 70 years, but then they actually fell into the exact opposite temptation, which was to be rigidly righteous, and then their behavior... Uh, blocking themselves from the, even the possibility of committing sin so that God would never again bring judgment upon them, that was just as sinful, just in a different way. And that's the historical context into which a preacher from the backwoods of northern Galilee was born. His name was Jesus, the son of Joseph, and he claimed to be a prophet and God's own son. And in many ways, he takes upon himself the prophet, excuse me, the mantle of the prophet Jeremiah. And on one occasion, he walks into the temple, he denounces the corrupt practices uh, that had taken hold there, and he did so. Do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 21? He says, my house, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Which happens to be, we didn't read it, but which happens to be a direct quotation, the den of robbers piece, from Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 7. He's taking up the mantle of Jeremiah, and wouldn't you know it, he continues, Jesus too lifted his voice in lamentation and in weeping over the sins of Jerusalem. Jesus too lifted his voice in weeping and lamentation over the death of his beloved friend Lazarus. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's ministry. And even more to the point, at the end of his life, after he was condemned unjustly, Jesus Christ was made to carry his own yoke of oppression to the place of his execution. But his yoke was not a symbol of the exile of God's people from Jerusalem, as Jeremiah's was. Rather, the yoke of Jesus Christ was a symbol of all people's exile from God, a more fundamental exile as a result of their sin. And although we didn't read this part, eventually Jeremiah's yoke was broken by one of the false prophets. But the yoke of the true Jeremiah was not broken. In fact, Jesus' yoke crushed him, broke his body, and then he breathed his last. And do you know what his last words were? It is finished. What? What is finished? The true exile of God's people. Through his atoning blood and belief in his saving death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. We are brought near to God. The exile has ended. And now we have an everlasting monument in the broken body of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection three days later that God himself has sure plans for our welfare and not for evil to give us a future and a hope. And that is the alternative consciousness and perception that our prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to deliver to us. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, you know that even with our most, even our wisest people, even as we fill ourselves up with insight and seek after wisdom, still we can't see what is going on in this world unless you enliven our eyes. And so we pray that you would grant us a prophetic imagination as we linger here in the prophets to see the hand of God at work in this world. And Father, would you further grant us the hope that you have promised to your people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and a place at his everlasting banqueting table. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, this table is a reminder of all the good plans that God has for us. In his letters, Peter reminds us that while we are no longer spiritual exiles from God, yet we remain exiled from our true home, the heavenly Jerusalem, whose builder and architect is God. But we eat and drink to remind ourselves that we will not always be exiles from that place. But as long as our suffering in this world remains, we have one sure hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his plans for us are good and not evil. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. You may eat and you may drink.